Okay, moving on now. I am going to continue our um, series on the Nazarite vow because that has been uh, on pending for a long time. And I thought it's ideal actually in the season of prayer and fasting to seek God uh, and um, you know, believe God for uh, a holy life because holiness is nothing but set apart. And prayer and fasting is nothing but setting apart ourselves to seeking God and uh, delighting in him. Amen. So I'm going to continue the series um, in the last leg. In fact, this Sunday and next Sunday, we will be concluding the third aspect of the Nazarite vow. So very quickly, just a quick recap. I think I, I see everyone here who's been with us for some time now. By the way, it's also nice to see such good numbers. 20 screens. Praise God. It's wonderful. We are looking at uh, the Nazarite vow. What we've already looked at is uh, the three things that uh, God forbidden the Nazarite who was taking the Nazarite vow to be engaged in. And all three had its significance. They basically stood for appetite. You need to set uh, aside a certain appetite and um, yes to some and no to some. The same went with appearance. We've covered appetite and appearance. And uh, this morning, we are going to look at association. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the points, crucial points of the Nazarite vow was that a Nazarite, a person who has taken a vow, could not come in contact with anything that was dead, you know, be it uh, their own family members or be it a carcass of any animal or bird. They had to make sure that they had no association with the dead. And it is very interesting, right? Uh, I mean, how, how can you exist on earth if you don't associate with the dead? But there is more to this uh, command when God gave this command to the Nazarite vow. And we will interestingly see how this command is renewed in the New Testament. I always believe the beauty of studying the Old Testament is so often you see how God, who is the God of the Old Testament, is also the God of the New Testament. And sometimes he just um, unravels the mystery of the Old Testament uh, when you read the New Testament. So I will end with one verse that will reiterate this point, uh, of course, in the context of the New Testament. So let's uh, move forward. And first and foremost, see what does it mean to associate? Associate is a very broad term. And uh, simply put, we will look at the definition in detail today. It just basically means fellowship. It means connection. It means um, bonding. We say, here is my associate. I work with him. We partner together and all of that. So the reason I split this message into two parts is because today I'm going to look at how as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we need to be set apart in terms of association. And next Sunday, we will look at how association works with the world. You know? how, why is it important? So we will look at two aspects of it. This might be two sides of the coin. It may look like a paradox, in fact, but I hope I can explain it better. So we're looking at uh, the Bible and we're going to look at some key critical verses this morning that speak of our association um, in the context of our association. So let's start with Psalms. Psalm chapter one, verse one. Very interesting. We often when we look at the book of Psalms, we think it's a book about songs and it is, it is. It is about praise, it is about worship, but it is also about our character, our conduct. And uh, many, many verses in the Psalms speak of that. 
In fact, look at the way the Psalms open. Chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. That's the NIV. You have the ESV in front of you. It's very interesting. It says three things. It says, firstly, it says, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who makes such tough decisions. What? He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. When the wicked are counseling together, he does not enter their company. Nor does he stand in the way of sinners. You know, he's not standing with the sinners and colluding and um, you know, planning things with them. Nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. Who are scoffers? Scoffers are someone who uh, we say in Hindi, thatta udane wale. You know, these are people who mock others, who laugh at others, but with a wicked intent, who always criticize others. And he says, blessed is the man who is not engaged in all this. Now, if you look at this verse very carefully, you will see three words, walk, stand, sit. It basically tells you that uh, there is somewhere a progression that is happening. Now, you often see uh, in, in India, you, when we were young in the 80s, a lot of people opened their shop on the streets. They would just put a mat and then they would do their own thing. Uh, it doesn't happen so often now. Uh, now you need a license to do anything that you do on the streets. But in our days, when we were young, when we were children, anybody could just spread a mat and do anything. You know? And something like reading your, uh, your parrot comes out and picks a card and all those things happened. You know? Horoscope readers, they were all there, just there on the streets. And it often happened that you people walked by and then they waited to watch uh, what was happening. Like one of the, one of the, one of our favorites as kids was uh, a man with a monkey and a damru. Uh, it was a drum. And if you remember, you know, they would, they would often come and uh, bring his monkey, his monkey sitting on his shoulder. And then he would do his um, acts, his stunts. You remember? Anybody remembers? Uh, now you don't see that anymore. Maybe animal activists have uh, gone after them. But in our days, it was very popular. As soon as we heard, duck, 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 we would all run down, stop playing, and just uh, go and watch what was happening. So that is how it was. You, know? you, you ran, you walked, and then you waited, and then you enjoyed it so much that you sat down. And uh, it really means that you are now totally into it. And that is how sin is, brothers and sisters. That is how sin is. Sin has a progressive element to it. Sin has a progressive tendency to it. You begin by walking into a sin. Then you basically begin to uh, enjoy sin by standing. And then you relish it by sitting down. You're, you're totally into it. And we must be careful how we, uh, how we live our lives, how we conduct ourselves. We've all heard of this great story of the Titanic. Haven't we? Yeah, the 15th of April, 1912. It's a, it's a date to remember. It's when the, uh, the, the great massive ship called the Titanic hit the iceberg and sunk, killing many, many people. And it's an absolute tragic uh, incident, uh, a nautical incident you know, where uh, the ship and all uh, travel. But do you know that a story that is less popular occurred two years later? In fact, on January 20, uh, 1914, two years later, there were two massive ships. One was called SS Munro. SS stands for steamship. So one was called the SS Munro, which is on top on your uh, screen. 
and the other was SS Nantucket. These were two ships that were traveling from two different regions. Now it so happened that they reached this coast of Virginia. It was night time, 2 a.m. So obviously it was all dark. And these ships collided. And they collided so badly, so badly, that unfortunately 41 people died. Not to mention that one of the ships totally sank. And it was a tragic incident. In fact, imagine in two years, US had these two incidents and uh, they panicked. Said, what's wrong with RCs? How did this happen? What went wrong? They had identified what went wrong with the Titanic. Now they set a committee to ask what went wrong with these two ships. How could these two massive, massive ships collide? You know, how come they were not aware? And uh, as you are aware, even with the planes, there is a clear path that is given to planes so that even if 10 planes fly in the sky at the same time, one coming from Bombay to Bangalore, second traveling from you know, Delhi to Guwahati, they never clash with one another because simply they are given timings. Everything is navigated, everything is planned and allotted. But in this case, when the committee was doing its inquiry, it was found out that one of the captains had simply digressed by two degrees. Now you may think two degrees, that's it. We're talking about 360 degrees, right? What is 360 degrees and what is two degrees? Two degrees is nothing. It's not even 1%. I mean, it's not even, you know, 0.1%, right? It's such a small number. Two degrees out of 360 degrees is too small. But this is how it started. The compass was faulty. So they slightly digressed but they kept heading in that direction. Now, as you keep heading in that direction of two degrees, very soon that two degree doesn't remain two degree. It moves to 20 and then to 200. And the ship was totally on a different course and it ended up in a massive, massive crash where people lost their lives and not to mention that there was major loss. The story teaches us a lesson, brothers and sisters. And the lesson is this. And we must be careful. Even a slight digression from God and from God's word and from God's spirit can lead to catastrophic accidents. Amen? Do you agree with me? You know, it's, it's a great story for us to realize that a two-degree digression led to such a massive incident and unfortunately uh, killing so many innocent people who had no fault of theirs. It was a faulty compass. And uh, we must make sure that our life, our radar does not shift. Sometimes we may compromise on life and say, it's okay, it's just two degrees. I mean, that, that's fine, right? I'm, I'm, my other 358 degrees is right. So you never know what this two degree can uh, do to us. Another psalm uh, written by none other than King David Psalm 26, this is what he says. Beautifully, he puts it. He says, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. Consort would mean simply keeping company, you know, a mingle with. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I love that statement. I do not, and I will not. David had made some hard decisions saying, what company will I choose? What company will I keep? And he says, this is what. 
I will not sit with men of falsehood. Those who lie, I will not you know, mingle with them. Nor will I do that with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers. Those who do evil, I hate them. And I will not sit with the wicked. Colin Powell says this beautiful quote. He says, a mirror reflects a man's face. But what he really is, is shown by the kind of friends he chooses. So this is something that is extremely important for us. What kind of company do we keep? What kind of association are we engaged with is extremely important, brothers and sisters. Let me tell you about a man called Demas. Has anyone read about Demas in the Bible? He's just mentioned three times, out of which two times is in a passing. So I wouldn't be surprised if none of you would have read it. Uh, but he's there in the Bible and I'll show you all the three verses. So who was Demas? Who was Demas in the Bible? Well, firstly, the meaning of the word Demas is popular. And that's a nice name to have, right? It's a nice name. Uh, we currently have a cricketer called Prasid, Prasid Krishna. And uh, Prasid is popular. No? It's, it's a nice name, right? Uh, and this was, and who was Demas? De well, let's look at these two verses and we'll know who Demas was. The first time Demas is mentioned is in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. We know that Paul had this habit of writing letters to his group of churches. And uh, he always greeted people right at the beginning and right at the end. That was his common practice. And this is what he says in Colossians 4. Um, I assume it's the last chapter. Colossians 4. And this is what he says. Uh, giving salam, giving greetings towards the end. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. And so this is the first time you read about Demas in the Bible. It seems like Demas was a part of Paul's team. He was a part of Paul's uh, you know, itinerant team. They went about ministering to people, equipping churches, and you know, planting churches, building churches. This is, this is the team that we see of Paul's when he travels through his multiple ministry journeys. The next time you read about Demas is in the book of Philemon. Philemon has just one chapter, verse 24 says, again, giving greetings, he says, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So here we know something a little more about Demas. We know that Demas was a part of Paul's a core group. He was a part of Paul's team that uh, had wide uh, services. They had been to Colossus, obviously, because when he's writing a letter to Colossians, He's talking about a person that they know. You see Luke and Demas uh, name taken in the same breath. Now we know Luke was a man who wrote the two books of the Bible, the book of Luke, the gospel and the book of Acts. And so you see, and you know, Mark, Mark here is John Mark, who also wrote the gospel of Mark. So this is a, this is a really core group. These are some of these men are men who ended up writing the gospel. Oh, these are special men. And Paul in, includes these names because this is Paul's core team. But then something tragic happens, really tragic. The last letter of Paul that he wrote before he was executed by Nero is 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy is, uh, again, not comparing, but it's a very special letter. The letter being, it's his last letter to his beloved uh, disciple, Timothy. And this is what Paul writes. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. He says, for Demas, having loved this present world, 
has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. It is a very tragic and a sad end to Demas's story. Here was this man who encountered Jesus. Then you can imagine his journey began as a Christian. He grew in the ranks. He grew so much so that Paul included him in his team. Then he went around ministering to churches. So you understand the stature of Demas, right? He went around ministering to different churches with Paul. And he became Paul's core member. His core team, maybe they must have gone to so many different regions preaching the gospel. And then as time went by, what happened to Demas? Demas fell in love with the world. Now, sometimes people get very confused with this word. What does it mean to be in love with the present world? Doesn't John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible say, God so loved the world? So if God can love the world, why can't Demas love the world? You must understand there is a core difference. Firstly, when it says God loved the world, it talks about God's compassionate. God's compassion for the dying world, for the perishing world, right? That's why it says God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, realizing that the world was in a mess. And that's why God gave his son so that people will be saved. They will believe in Jesus and not perish and have eternal life, right? So when it says God loved the world, the context is totally different. So what does it mean when it says Demas loved the world? It says Demas loved this present world, which means Demas got so attracted by what the world had to offer that he decided to forsake God and choose to be one with the world. He chose, he found something so attractive in the world that he decided to leave God and went away from Paul, went away from the ministry and he became one with the world, he united with the world, separating from God. So I hope the context is now clear. And this is something that we must watch our lives. If someone as a stature of Demas can be, can go astray, can, uh, you know, get, uh, what, what was the common word we use? Backslide, right? If, they, if this can happen to someone like Demas, who was in close company with Paul and such a gifted man and such a great minister, then we've got to watch our life and doctrine closely. Hallelujah. That is one of Paul's advices to his um, to one of the churches. He says, please watch your life and your doctrine closely. Because otherwise, what happened to Demas can happen to us. Here is another interesting two verses we are going to look at, which often disturb people. So look at what this says. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. How often as young, have young people heard this verse, right? It's always in the context of marriage, no? So how, you know, this, I don't think any young person must have escaped this verse. Somebody or someone must have told you this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What exactly is Paul talking about? Does he even ever mention about marriage here? I don't think so. He doesn't. But I'll tell you the context. So this is what he says. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Accord is a treaty, something that you sign a pact. And Belial is a name given to the devil. 
the word bilal simply means worthless so bil bilai means what yal means less so it's worthless so it says what what accord what pact what treaty is there between christ and bilal or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever now look at this verse he's explaining this unequally yoked he's talking about terms like partnership fellowship accord pact treaty and sharing so let's understand this verse firstly clearly then it will make sense uh, because we're looking at the context of association right and this verse is so integral so firstly paul is using like jesus his master who often used farming examples jesus loved farming examples so many of his parables are farming parables he uses an image that is very easy to understand in the context of the first century he says uh, you know everybody must have seen a farmer it's like saying have you seen a car right everybody has seen a car you walk out of the street and you see a car every day similarly people saw farming every day and he says can you imagine an ox being paired with a donkey or a cow being paired with a horse you know or an elephant being paired with a camel that's not possible right you can always plow with two animals of the same kind you cannot unequally yoke there's nothing wrong with a donkey or the camel or one of the animal it's just that when you pair them they've got to be alike right it makes sense otherwise if you unequally yoke them you will achieve nothing or very little you know why because there is such difference between the two animals so this is the context he's painting a, a picture and this is something that is so beautiful about the bible the bible often paints such beautiful pictures to simply uh, reiterate the point that the writer is trying to or the author or the speaker is trying to make now let's get the context so here he says here is um, here is a different animal and here is a different animal you cannot yoke them they are unequally yoked and it is not possible to do that if you are serious about plow, plowing if you are serious about making your life a success living your life for god for his glory then you cannot be unequally yoked yes it is in the context of marriage it is in the context of marriage so the narrative does apply to marriage but it is not restricted to marriage it could even apply to a partnership it can even apply to staying with someone under one roof it can even apply to someone as close as a good friend now you may think now you may say are you saying that we can't marry an unbeliever or we can't partner with anyone who does not believe in christ are you saying that we cannot live with someone who does not believe in christ under one roof and are you saying that we cannot be friends with those who do not believe in christ well i am not saying that because that's impossible right that's impossible what i am saying and what paul is saying here is dependency that's the key word dependency we cannot be dependent on those who are different and that is the point that paul is making light and darkness christ and belial and i'll look at what he's how he's comparing believers and unbelievers so he's saying understand we have there are different quotients in life right there is the physical quotient the financial quotient 
and then there are four other quotients the mental emotional social and spiritual physically you can be dependent on someone who is uh, you know not believing in christ you can financially also you can like we all we all uh, we all have probably bosses most of us have who are uh, paying us salaries and they don't believe right you can work for them you they are providing for you and so in that sense you are dependent but these areas especially mental mentally you can't be dependent on someone who is not of the same um, faith emotionally you can't you know imagine feeling emotional and going to someone who doesn't believe in christ what advice will you get it's definitely going to be a bit dicey socially you can't and definitely not spiritually if you read the acronym it is mess you will get into a mess if you really depend on someone uh, who is not of the same faith who does not believe in christ and this is the point that paul is trying to make now the most intimate relationship that is uh, that man knows is marriage and that is why we often use this verse in the context of marriage because in marriage you get so much in fact you even get physically uh, united and emotionally and spiritually united and that is why it is quite fair to take that verse but that verse cannot be restricted to only marriage paul is talking in a broader term basically paul is saying how can you depend how can your hearts unite when you are totally unequally yoked amen amen uh, and this is the verse look at this now when we are looking at the nazarite vow of not associating with the dead this verse fits in so well in the context of the new testament 2 corinthians chapter 6 verse 17 and 18 say this therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them says the lord and touch no unclean thing then i will welcome you and i will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me says the lord almighty it is often that we don't look at holiness in the new testament we look at a lot of grace verses which are beautiful and important we look at love we look at forgiveness but we often neglect verses that challenges and motivate us and stir us to live a holy life this is one such verse for the sisters it says go out from their midst out from whose midst from midst of sinners from the world and be separate from them says the lord and touch no unclean thing it looks like you know nazarite vow repackaged then i will welcome you then i will be your father to you and you will be my sons and daughters says the lord almighty a beautiful quote i read you cannot change the people around you but you can change the people you choose to be around isn't that a wonderful quote so you cannot change the people around you but you can change the people you choose to be around amen okay quickly moving forward another controversial verse that people get very disturbed by is this verse matthew chapter 10 verse 37 anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me now sometimes someone who is reading this verse can get very disturbed what is god trying to say is god trying to say that i cannot love my father or mother is god trying to say that i cannot love my son or daughter that is not what it's saying 
if you read the fine print and very closely, the key word is more than me. That's the key word, right? And that's why it's repeated twice in this one verse. So to illustrate this, I'm going to give you an example from the life of Jesus' story. But to illustrate this, let me um, draw your attention to another image, the image of a soldier. We are all familiar with soldiers, right? We just celebrated 26 January and we are all familiar with soldiers. Soldiers are those who are committed to their nation, to the cause of their nation and primarily to protect their nation. They, they guard our borders. They risk their lives. Do soldiers have families? Yes, they do. They have mothers and fathers and wives and children and uh, probably even grandchildren. You know, uh, and they love their families. They love their families. But when the call of duty comes, they are willing to part from them uh, and uh, risk their lives and even die for the sake of their cause. Right? They are willing to risk their lives. Amen? Amen? It is the same context that Paul is talking of. This is, this, this is why he says this. He says, anyone who loves their father and mother, imagine a soldier who loves his child so much that he says, you know what, uh, I love my child. She's just two years old, so I'm not going to go and fight on the border. How would that make you feel? That would make you feel very insecure, right? You, you would shudder to imagine if a soldier takes such a call, then uh, your life goes at risk. And that is exactly what God is saying. As soldiers of Christ, of course, we love our family. Of course, we love our parents and our children and even our extended families. But the call to serve God, our dedication and devotion to God comes before our dedication and commitment to our family. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. I hope this puts the matter in context. Now let's look at a story in Jesus' life. Very interesting. Another of his disciples, Jesus once invited a guy to come and follow him. I mean, imagine Jesus did that quite often, right? And to and to credit some, they did follow Jesus. Matthew and um, Peter and John and Andrew and James. These guys did follow. But once when Jesus asked a man, asked a person who was with uh, Jesus, mind you, the word is disciple. There was a guy who was a fringe. You know, he, he claimed probably to be a disciple of Jesus. He was there when Jesus was teaching. So Jesus looked at him and said, come follow me. Come get fully committed to me. To which he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Hmm, interesting. Now what is really interesting is Jesus' response. To which Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now this again is a very disturbing verse. You know, people think, what exactly was Jesus saying? Uh, what does it even mean that the dead bury their dead? Firstly, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that dead people are going to bury dead people because that's not possible. Right? Just in case you think first century was different, no. It was not possible in the first century also. Dead people cannot bury dead people. So there are three things that Jesus was saying here. There are three points, notable points. Firstly, what Jesus was identifying was those who are living but spiritually dead. Right? Those who are spiritually alive and spiritually dead. So that's the context. 
or Jesus was telling him is you are spiritually alive. You come follow me. Let those who are spiritually dead, let them get into all this activity of dead, burying their dead. Okay, even if you take that point, you still feel Jesus is being very harsh to him. Here is his father who is dead and Jesus is saying, don't go and bury him. Again, that is not what Jesus is saying. Most scholars would say that in the context of the way the Greek uh, wordings are, what this guy was really saying was, my father is old. When he dies, that's when I'll come and follow you. That could be two years down the line. That could be five years down the line. That could be 10 years down the line. That could be 20 years down the line. If you, if you read the Bible in the Old Testament, do you know that there are two interesting stories, the story of Isaac and the story of Samuel. And in both stories, their age and their lifespan was underestimated. Some other day I'll explain that story. It's very interesting to know how Isaac got his death wrong, his timing of the death, and how Samuel also got his timing wrong. You know, it's a very interesting that, that angle is. And so here is this man saying, you know what, my father is old. So when he dies, you know, whenever he dies, that is when I will come and follow you. And it seems like an excuse that he's giving Jesus. He doesn't want to follow Jesus, but he says, you know, it's like, imagine, imagine in the current context, if I say, if somebody, um, somebody's father does die and we tell him, yeah, we understand your father is dead. Take a week, take two weeks. And then you start coming to church and again start serving and you know, whatever way you're serving. And imagine he says, I will wait for the Barsi because Barsi is a common word in India. Barsi is like one year. And we're like, what? Yeah, I'll, I'll do his Barsi and come. No. Imagine you, you are working for a company and you tell them that I will finish my father's Barsi and come. You'll say, boss, you do your own thing. You know, who takes one year? You can't take that long. And that is exactly what this guy is saying. Whenever my father dies, that's when I will come. And Jesus sees through his excuse. In fact, there is a scholar who brought a brilliant point, which other scholars agree with. What this guy was really waiting for, his father to die, then his father's inheritance to come to him so that his, his future is financially secured. And then he was saying, then I will come and follow you. It's exactly the contrast of what the other disciples did. They left everything, especially if you notice in the case of um, um, James and John, they left their father. You did you notice that was right? They left their father and the net. So they left their father, they left their fa father's business and they decided to follow Jesus. Here is a man who is doing exactly the opposite. He's not willing to leave his father, who could, you never know when he'll die. And the second, there could be a possibility that he's waiting for his father's inheritance to come to him. So following Jesus would mean forsaking his father's inheritance. And he's not willing to pay that price. So this is the context that Jesus is trying to make. You know, he's saying Jesus is not insulting the dead. He's basically challenging and provoking us to come and follow me. Come and follow me. Don't be associated. We are looking at association, right? Don't be associated with things that are dead, with things 
that are lost but come be radical in our following of jesus so jesus was effectively telling him what's written in psalm 95 and would be underlined in hebrews later if today you hear his voice do not harden your hearts right today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts let me end with this verse let us purify ourselves yet another verse on holiness it says let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit perfecting holiness out of reverence for god what a loaded verse this is it is the challenge brothers and sisters to purify ourselves from things that contaminate our body we understand what contamination is right in the past two years uh, we have understood we've taken every precaution whether it is sanitizing washing our hands wearing our masks what are we doing to purify our spirit what is the kind of sanitization that we are using to purify our spirit i pray and hope that this word will um, you know stay with you and you continue to examine your heart of how i can purify myself in my spirit how can i avoid any contamination of my spirit and there it goes on to say perfecting holiness out of reverence for god you are not becoming holy so that you are not continuing to live a holy life so that people will be impressed by you so that you will get some uh, reward from the government but out of reverence to god hallelujah now you are saying if i disassociate myself with the world how will i advance the gospel to which i'm going to answer next sunday next sunday we are going to look at this angle like i said to you initially that there are two sides to the coin right you are not called to mingle and depend and mix with that which is of the world and yet you are called to advance the gospel how how are both possible the other aspect we're going to look at next sunday come let's pray father we just want to thank you lord for this beautiful uh, morning we thank you for your word lord i pray and ask for myself and my brothers and sisters lord that we will we will really purify ourselves lord we will keep ourselves holy in you for you have made us holy and you've called us to now remain holy be holy even as a heavenly father is holy help us lord that we will we will avoid any such thing that contaminates our spirit out of our reverence to you lord help us help us lord jesus to not be unequally yoked in any way lord but help us lord jesus not to digress even 2 degrees help us to stay on course with you lord we humble ourselves and we take nothing for granted lord we know if a man like demas can fall then none of us can say that we are absolutely fine lord help us to watch our life and our doctrine closely in the name of jesus we pray amen amen god bless you and thank you so much for joining in